Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio. one Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Introducing Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer. Blending the smooth, creamy nitro taste of Guinness with hints of coffee, chocolate, and caramel. Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer, your new favorite part of the day. Look for it where Guinness is sold. Must be 21 and over to purchase. Please enjoy responsibly. Diageo Beer Company, New York, New York. Winning comes in all shapes and sizes. Every day there's an opportunity for a win, just like scratchers from the Virginia Lottery. Every day grab-and-go, every day giftable, every day fun. It's where anticipation meets instant gratification, and they're satisfying to scratch no matter the outcome. Like the new Virginia Lottery Scratcher Colossal Cash. It's loaded with $100 to $500 prizes. Now, that's an everyday win. Drive to the nearest Virginia Lottery retail location and pick up a scratcher today. Odds of winning any prize, 1 in 3.21. All right, it's Film Study Week 5. Yes, it was a loss. Yes, it was to the Browns. Ravens lost Week 5 in Cleveland. 9-12 was the final score. Ken McCusick, how you doing? Life's good, Josh. How about you? I'm doing all right. You know, it gets better to be a Ravens fan as we record this on Monday night, and I just see the Washington Redskins on Monday night football, and I say, <laughs> I think I'd rather lose to the Browns than what they're going through tonight. Yep. So, um, interesting game. Uh, we'll get to it. Everyone's – it's funny. When the Ravens win, everyone calls for the Super Bowl. When they lose – Everyone says they're trash, and how could they lose to a team like the Browns? But this isn't the Browns that we've been used to in previous years. Yeah, really bipolar fans, no doubt about it. I mean, they're just ultimate highs and lows. 
but you're right. This is a this is a better Browns team. Uh, you know, a, a well assembled defense in terms of they used some number one picks very well. Miles Garrett last year, uh, Ward this year have, have both been playing well. They look like they've got decent picks on offense. Uh, they've got some some players returning and playing decently, and like Agba and um, Collins, who have looked better than they have in a, in a couple of years now. So. It's it's starting to look like a real defense. The, the team still has a lot of problems on offense, uh, some skill position shortcomings at wide receiver, but it's a pretty good Browns team. Right now, the Browns still only scored twelve points, so I think we will have some positive things to say about the defense today. It's going to be the offensive episode that we're going to have a lot of questions about what's going on. Yeah, I, I think that's really it. Is that this this was a bad loss in a few ways, but it's a bad loss in terms of the division race versus the Bengals. Now remember. It doesn't really matter that much in terms of the division rates to the Browns and the Steelers other than it's a loss and they're a game behind because both those teams have a tie. So any sort of tiebreaker situation won't be meaningful, we, we, would, we would expect, with either the Browns or the Steelers. But it, it can be serious loss in terms of the division race to the Bengals or leading now because they're now one and two in the division and the Bengals, I guess, are what? Still, I believe, only one and oh in the division. I don't believe they played... Pittsburgh, which they have coming up, I don't believe they played Cleveland either, so they're still only one and zero in the division. Right. But anyway, right? Yeah, and that's in, when you look at the division. That's the interesting thing about the Ravens is they got all their division road games out of the way already. Yeah, that is nice. You know, it's a good place to be. That means they they come up with three home games against those teams later in the year. Who knew that that's the way it worked? And if they can get out of Tennessee with a win, they'll be four and two after playing four road and two home, and that is a hell of a nice place to be in terms of sitting pretty for the playoffs. Right. So besides the inner division with the Bengals and because they're having a good season, it this loss doesn't mean a whole lot besides just a general loss. That's it's right. It's an AFC loss, so it could hurt in the wild card race. Uh, so I win with against Tennessee is important and it's a divisional loss against the Bengals. Yes. Those are the two ways that it hurts the team. All right. Um, anything good to take out of this just yeah, before I we think- get really deep? I think there's lots of things to take good out of this. But, you know, you can start with the returns of Willie Henry and Jimmy Smith. And I didn't know, frankly, what to expect out of Willie Henry, given the fact that he's coming off a hernia. You don't know if he's going to be really limited, a little limited, if he's going to be really looking as good as he could be. I think he's probably been ready for a couple of weeks to come back. But they've just figured out that now is a is a reasonable time to do it. And uh, and he played pretty well. Got a sack. Really seemed to get some decent push in the in the middle here. I'll need to see that continue. But they did have him out there for in the high 30s in terms of snaps, which is a good sign for starters. And uh, and that's good. Jimmy Smith, I thought was outstanding in his first game back. Uh, he played 33 snaps as I account for them. So that excludes the penalties, excludes a spike that uh, that existed for the Browns. But he played 33 snaps. He only was thrown at once, and that's when he had outstanding step-for-step coverage of Callaway down the left sideline. He really looked like the receiver on the play, uh, but he used the boundary extremely well. And that's the Jimmy Smith, Mike Taylor kind of methodology of guarding that sideline, and, and he's very good at it. So great to see him back that way. We'll still still need to see if he can stay with receivers to the inside the way he used to be able to, but uh, that's a good sign at least. They were not throwing at him. Right, right. And – the announcers were confusing me a little bit because right after that play, Jimmy Smith went to the sideline for a little bit, and they were talking about how he is not in football shape. That I keep hearing that. that. What does that I, mean? 
I, I don't know. I mean, there may be this some aerobic situation where he's having trouble carrying, covering a nine route, making a tackle. Then they feel like he has to come out of the game. I just think they wanted to rotate the players a little bit to, to make sure that they're all still in the plan somehow. Yeah, I, I think if anyone has a big play like that, all right, let's pull him to the side for a moment. Yeah, you, they're probably you, you not going to throw him twice. You can afford to do that yeah. when you have three corners as good as Ravens have. They actually have four corners this good, but the, but the fourth guy they probably won't treat the same way, Anthony Averett. Uh, but but anyway, it's it's a it's a nice deep corner position that almost got a little bit less deep in this game, which we'll talk about a little later. Sure, sure. All right, let's get let's get the negatives out of the way because it was a loss. There were things that didn't work out well. Um, there was one play where they that third and long, and then the Ravens said that no one on the defense knew what was going on. No one knew the play. Well, um, I'm trying to I'm trying to remember what the, what you're talking about. Are you talking about the substitution issue? Or are you talking about the the third and long on third and eight where they gave up the 39 yard the pass 30, play? The 39 yard pass play where I, the, I, the defense said we didn't know no one knew what what the play was. Okay, didn't hear that. I mean, obviously the pass rush did a good job on that play, and that's fortunate if no one knew what the play going on was. But uh, uh, trail coverage by Carr could not keep up with the receiver Willies. You know the great Willies. Uh, undrafted free agent wide receiver over the middle of the field, but excellent pass rush on that play by Suggs. He got man, uh, not Manziel. <laughs> he got Mayfield turned around. Uh, Mayfield still threw an excellent pass across his body on target to Willie's. Really bad to be trailing that badly on that route because it's a tackle you could have made for a nine-yard gain. Instead of it turns into thirty-nine because of the because of the diving miss by Carr and uh, and that was just unfortunate that it went for a big play effectively busted busted play with extended pocket time and the Browns made something out of it and that's one of the plays I look at when I really am fearful about Mayfield's emergence uh, now from the for the Browns you know we, we always had a he's a number one draft pick you expect him to be pretty good you still hope the Browns will pick the wrong guy of the available quarterbacks but uh, I don't think that's happened this time unfortunately Right. Yep. Um, all right. So where where would you like to start with these uh, with the negatives? negatives with other negatives? Okay. Well, let's talk about the substitution problems because okay. that came up earlier. Yes. Um, and we'll work our way up. Maybe there's some more serious problems. But the 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 big thing that keeps happening with the Ravens is they keep any lining up with ten men on defense, and they did it again. And it's not the kind of time in the game you'd expect them to make this error. Overtime with a minute and sixteen left. Okay, so they're defending the Browns' drive. They're in Ravens' territory after that 39-yard pickup. There might have been one play after that, but all of a sudden they've got 10 men on the field, and they did not, uh, you know, they were about to run a play, and fortunately they called timeout and, and got the change made. But that would have been the fourth time in five games that they played with 10 men on the field. Really embarrassing. They had another timeout earlier in the game where they got the 12th man off the field. Uh, just in time, so they ran Awasu off the field, and and they got him. They got that done just in time too. So it was a combination of various problems uh, with substitution still exists, and I hope they can get that that straightened out. Yeah, and exactly like you were saying, it's every game we're talking about this, so that's an issue. We um, would love to have an episode where this went away. Right. So I think it was, was it Sunday morning when we found out that Pierce wasn't going to play? We didn't know it before Sunday. Yeah, I didn't know it before Sunday. On Friday, there was something about him missing practice, but I didn't know how to, how seriously to take it. And then he's out for the game. And the Ravens, as we mentioned last week against Pittsburgh, really play kind of small when he's not in there. 
And more than that, the Browns really saw it coming, however, and decided to put in some heavy packages uh, to try and get the run going. And they did a pretty effective job, I'd have to say. They have power backs with both Hyde and Chubb, who are bigger guys, who uh, you know both very powerful runners. And they're the kind of guys who can break tackles against the secondary, and that's just what they did some of in this game. Now, it's not the worst thing in the world. There's a lot of teams in the NFL who would love to give up four yards per run and have that be the extent of it. They give up 28 for 112. But the Ravens are used to dominating against the run, and, and this is not what they're looking to do. So Brandon Pierce forces everybody to get to play a little bit heavier position, as we've said before, and that was a problem in this one. Right, and also with that, how much was the fact that they were having trouble tackling? Yeah, a lot, a lot of it was tackling, and they had tackles on pass plays, tackles on run plays, a little bit of both, but the first guy, particularly in the secondary, did not seem to be making tackles. Mosley uh, was among those. Mosley didn't have a good game at all, and uh, not in coverage, not, on, not against the run, not as a tackler. I mean, there just wasn't anything. He's, he's devoid from my notes, except where I'm noting on these run plays, exactly how the blocking how the key blocks were set up and uh, getting caught in the wash a lot on the on the uh, on the runs one of the things about uh, about uh, both Chubb and Hyde is they're fairly patient runners so the Browns seem to run a patient scheme and that's the uh, that's the Le'Veon Bell method and that's been very effective against the Ravens in, in the past I think it's generally effective when you have a good offensive line like the Browns seem to from a run blocking perspective but they uh, uh, were able to lean on the Ravens a little bit in this game and, and use their size and their ability to get in a level two and break more tackles. Right. Now, it wasn't just the running game. They were able to throw the ball around, too. Yeah, the, the Ravens still have this blind spot. And it's not like a lot of teams don't have the same problem. Teams that play cover, two, the weak spot on the field is right in the middle of the field, usually to the tight end or a crossing receiver between level two and level three. So if your linebackers don't have a really good sense of what's going on behind them, and we've talked about this before, and can't help cut down on passing lanes. Now you think about the linebackers. It's not like there's a lot. You know, Ray Lewis certainly could do it in his day. Luke Keekley is known for being a great, great uh, specialist at it. Mosley is starting to learn about this kind of thing, but we'll often overstate how far he is in terms of his learning about what's going on behind him. And, you know, the Ravens don't have a regular linebacker. Kenny Hill, Kenny Young, a pure downhill player at this point in his career, has no idea what's going on behind him as far as I can tell. Right. But the only guy, the guy is Levine. That's the guy they need to have on the field. And he's a dime guy, and they're already playing light on the defensive line, and you really can't have him out there for all three downs. So you pick your spots, and when you need him on third down, he can help you. When, when it's not third down, the other team can exploit the linebackers. Gotcha. Um, and part of this has to also be Baker Mayfield and that he's looking like he's a real quarterback. Yeah. I, I, and that's in the long run, that's the most serious problem coming out of this. And, and it's a problem for football in general, but it's a problem for for the Ravens in particular. The Ravens are in this division now. They've they've suffered through a number of years of Roethlisberger being good. Now Mayfield's coming into the league, and it looks like he's going to be good and a similar type of quarterback in terms of being one that uh, you can't let extend the play because of his ability to be shifty, get out of the pocket, get different angles to the receiver and whatnot, the same way that Roethlisberger has done in the past to beat the Ravens. This is something that that is a general problem with football is the rules are getting – too lenient for the passing game and teams with a defensive tradition and teams that rely on defense and frankly any team 
who does not have one of the top five to eight quarterbacks in the game, and the Ravens, unfortunately, are in that spot currently, um, is not going to be happy with the rules of football. Now, I, you're a baseball guy, Josh, and I yep. would point back to the 1970s and say that the, the baseball played then was better, and not because it was the golden age of my youth, but because it was a era of competing philosophies. I, I really don't like the way baseball has evolved to be a pure power strikeout game, that the shifts have taken away a lot of the uh, uh, ability to get hits. I don't. I really. We, I hated AstroTurf at the time because the Orioles were bad playing on it. Right. But I like AstroTurf from the standpoint that it's a competing philosophy item. Right. Uh, no. I mean, yeah. My favorite part of baseball is that every stadium is different. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, we had the discussion tonight on Section Three Thirty Six, a new episode that just went out. A very similar discussion about how analytics we think are bad for baseball because it turns it all into this this nerdy like uh, strike out these guys you don't have the the competitiveness of going up and remembering all right this is how this guy goes and just the the brutal best athletes versus the best athletes well you can you can it's the analysts who will fix the game josh because they will find out how you derive advantages, and then you have rule changes that take those advantages away. Right. And so, for example, if, if pitching is dominated too much, and right now I think relief pitching and the way those are used, you create rules around that. You know, Bill James suggested yes. you bring in a pitcher and they have to pitch through one complete rotation of the lineup. Right. Yeah. Or it's why they're thinking of banning the shift in baseball because it's hurting the power hitters. I don't know how you ban the shift, not really, but but that's but that's an interesting one. Right. Maybe maybe you can you can say you have to have two two infielders on either side of second base kind of thing. Or you that, say yeah, or you say the third baseman can only go in this it cannot cross second base, or the shortstop cannot cross second base. You can do it by position in. Okay. But uh, but anyway, it's the same idea of of as these games that we fall in love with change over years. They're minor mm-hmm. changes one at a time. But then they quickly add up, and you look at the game of football, and you're like, okay, the quarterback has all the control in the world, which makes sense because you're paying these guys a lot of money. But when you get a quarterback on the field like Baker Mayfield, who can do all the stuff a running back can do, but he's also the quarterback and has all the protections of the quarterback, it's an interesting dilemma. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point to make there. And you know, maybe the the Ravens are supposed to have that guy in Lamar Jackson. Just the difference is that you know you've got a much more polished thrower, obviously, in terms of Mayfield. Maybe Jackson gets there, maybe he doesn't. But uh, it's I don't like a game where the only way you can win is by having a great quarterback. That's a terrible way to structure the NFL. You're in this beautiful position. Baseball has fucked it up royally in terms of not having a salary cap that's meaningful. And this is something that, that football has done very well is they have a salary cap and they have the ability to force you to work within this confine that, that is very good for com- creating competitive balance. In fact, creating roller coaster parity through the years by the exchange of draft picks and, and, and cap that you can push forward or push back kind of thing. But you don't you, you, you're losing it if all that matters is your is your ability to draft for one position. So anyway, that's my problem with the with the state of football right now. It doesn't have anything to do with concussions, the other things. You gotta you gotta deal with player safety in a fair way, but then you, they need to do something differently to slow down quarterbacks at the same time they're doing everything to protect them. So there needs to be something else that makes it more difficult to pass the ball uh, and 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 creates more run pass balance and defense offense balance in the game. I, I agree, and it's, yeah, and this is where you hope that 
you know, as they watch TV ratings, as they watch stars emerge, they they tend to adjust rules towards the stars. So, if yeah. it's going to take uh, next couple of years when we have more mobile quarterbacks that become the stars as they adjust the rules to to make that them work out. Yeah, you're right. And if you look back, that's historically the norm in every sport. They they let Babe Ruth run the game in the 1920s. As soon as he became a star, they saw what it did for the game and its popularity. They they let him have his way, and for the for the rest of right. well, since then <laughs> right. we've had lively lively baseballs. Oh yeah, baseball lied about juicing the balls for years, but it got him home runs. Um, all right, let's get back to the uh, football. And you have must be really enjoying this season because I think it's clear that the Ravens' defense is a dime defense. Yeah, it, it is. It's it's uh, they've shifted these last two games to play a lot more dime and some pass heavy. Uh, pass-heavy situ- situations in Pittsburgh where they were really always threatening the pass with uh, up to five guys who could go wide on every single play. But against Cleveland, who has a more restricted group of receivers, you know, some tight ends and, and you know, always a fairly heavy running back in the game uh, with, with one exception, um, you wouldn't necessarily expect to see as much dime, but they played 36 of 75 snaps in the dime. And I think part of that is that they really were trying to take away the tight end as much as possible, and and Levine was helping them do that in the middle of the field. So we'll talk about Levine a little bit later because he had a fantastic game. Uh, the other package that I just want to mention is they, they did try a dime with four cornerbacks in this game, and that's a little odd, but they took Jefferson off the field, one of their two deep safeties, and they put in all four of their cornerbacks, Tavon Young, Smith, Carr, and Humphrey, and have four corners and two safeties in a dime. That's a little unusual. I've seen it occasionally with the Ravens in the past, but but not very often. And the two plays went for 14 and 39 yards, including that 9 plus 30 that was really the pivotal play in the game uh, that got the uh, uh, Browns out of a deep hole on third and eight in overtime. Right. So you know, we, may, we need never speak of it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Um now, at some points in the game, the Browns were putting six offensive linemen in, so the Ravens yeah. were adjusting to that as well. Yeah, that's a good point, Josh, and thanks for bringing that up. I kind of forgot about that. But the, but the very first play of the game, the Browns stuck six offensive linemen on the field, um, and the Ravens responded immediately. They, they obviously knew what they were planning to do under that circumstance, and they put a fourth defensive lineman in the game. They started with only three defensive backs. So the only cornerback to start the game was Carr, they had the two safeties out there, and they had an eight-man box, effectively, with four linebackers and four defensive line. The very first play of the game, they ran for 10 yards. They ran it twice more on first down. Subsequently, in the first half, they gained negative one and negative four yards on the next two times. So the Ravens, I think, got it figured out and uh, and ended up with three plays for five yards. So worked out for them, and uh, and it was good to see them make the adjustments to, sh- to shut that down. And another good feather in Martindale's cap that he was able to figure out how to deal with a sixth offensive lineman. Right, right. Um, the Ravens continue to do the other thing that you keep pointing out, that they keep rotating guys in and out and in and out and giving all your guys rest. Yeah, that, Martindale's did a terrific job with that, and it's across the board. Obviously, they did it some at, at cornerback in this game, but in this game, they were short of pass rushers, so they didn't have Tim Williams um, in the game, and that's one less than they would normally have. They had Bowser. They didn't really get him in that much, only 13 snaps, and he had two pressures in this game. I thought played pretty well, but they didn't extend his usage. But if you looked at what was happening, 
Suggs and Zadarius Smith were in there basically every play towards the end of the game, and they were still getting pressure on a, on a high percentage of plays, particularly Suggs, who just kept pushing that left tackle back into the quarterback play after play in overtime. And he was playing so well, it's hard to you know think about taking him out it's at 60-plus snaps. And maybe this is that rare game where the offensive lineman actually gets more physically worn down than the defender does. Normally, people will tell you nothing is more tiring than rushing the passer. That was something Merlin Olsen always used to say. And, of course, being a defensive lineman, he probably would say that. But the offensive lineman, you know, he he's having to put up a lot of effort to try and keep Suggs in front of him play after play. And Suggs keeps pushing him back into the quarterback, getting a hand on the quarterback, doing all these things. Got to be very frustrating to him, too. And he was having to do it without help because they were having to having to deal with their protections at other places on the line of scrimmage. So in, in this particular game, it looked like Suggs was a lot fresher than their left tackles. Darius Smith was a lot fresher than whoever he was up against. And sometimes he was rushing from the inside, sometimes the outside. Um, but, but he did a very good job to the end of the game. You know, that was one place where they really got it done well. They got it well done well on, on the cornerback rotation. Carr had 67 snaps, Humphrey 54, Smith 33. So no one was particularly taxed. I'm a little surprised that Carr remains the guy getting the most snaps. So I would have thought we'd have seen more of Humphrey and Smith without Carr. That's the, actually the combination we saw the least missed. Carr also picked up some slot snaps when Tavon Young was in the concussion protocol. So he ended up with a few extra snaps for that. But uh, in general, I expect to see a little bit more of Humphrey, more of Smith this coming week, and a little bit less of Carr uh, uh, as we move forward. But good balance in terms of what they're doing. And what you mentioned earlier, Josh, is a great idea. Somebody has to cover a nine route. They do a good job with it. Or somebody has to make a play way down the field. Go ahead and rotate him out. They, they, and, they've got the guys. And, yeah, Carr, it's got to be the fact that he did so well the week before that they decided to give him more more time out there on the field. Um, along with, you mentioned Tavon Young right after that interception getting into the concussion protocol. So that was right. good that he cleared that. That really helped them be able to flex these guys in and out. Right. Well, it was very scary because the Ravens went in the game with only four active corners. And, of course, you play three corners on all of your nickel and dime snaps. And, and, and they, you know, they played four once this game, but they but they played three on every one. So it's it's never advisable, in my opinion, to go into a game with four cornerbacks. Scares the hell out of me when they do it. But they but they did in this game. And, and this was a, a case where they almost were in trouble with it when Tavon got the concussion protocol. So they, they had to while those guys while he was out, every nickel snap had to be all three of those guys in the game. And, and if it had been for an extended period, it would have been potentially a problem for, sure. for Smith. Right. Uh, how much did not having Tim Williams hurt? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it was bad to not have him because I think Suggs and Smith could have had their snaps more spread out. Um, uh, but they played so effectively and all the way till the end of the game, it's hard to really find a problem with it. It just maybe the, the thing to say would be that Tim Williams himself could have, could have had a sack or had, you know, a little bit more of a pressure game even against those two tackles. Both the Browns tackles, by the way, very poor guy. Hubbard on the, at right tackle and the left guard, left tackle Harrison, both very weak and uh, exploitable. And, you know, a guy like Tim Williams, who's got every move in the book and a lot of speed, certainly is a guy who can uh, take advantage of that. All right. Uh, before the game, a few days before Baker Mayfield was mentioned in his comments, said, I haven't had my welcome to the NFL net, uh moment yet 
so no big hits yet on him. The Ravens managed to get to him a little bit, and he only had 34% ample time and space. That's right, 34%. So, so yeah, that's a really good number. Uh, I'd say anything below about 45%, I start to call it a, a good number, and they get into the 30s, it's a very good number. Um, it's just hard to do that because when you vary your your the way you rush the passer, it usually creates opportunities for ample time and space when the line is overprotecting, like they hold somebody into block and you drop an extra man into into space, and that that you know it creates some automatic ample time and space opportunities. So it's only so low you can get. Was my point. Now in this game, Martindale had more scheme for pressure and more numbers for pressure both. So. He, he rushed more than he did against Denver. He had, uh, or, or against Pittsburgh for that matter, when they used primarily four-man pass rushes both games. Uh, this it was a, an even amount of four- and five-man pressures and a couple of six and seven, or a total, one of each of six and seven uh, otherwise. So saw more numbers, saw a couple more blitzes, up to 19 from off the line of scrimmage here to go with, uh, I think it was 12 of the uh, uh, stunts and... I want to say nine times they dropped two to coverage. So uh, a lot of scheme for pressure, a lot of trying to confuse Mayfield. In my opinion, uh, it would have been best to try and keep Mayfield in the pocket and allow him to make some unforced errors from there. In particular, all the errors aren't really unforced when you have a six-foot-tall guy sitting in the middle of a tall pocket when people like Urban and Henry, who are significantly taller, have their hands up trying to block the pass. Uh, we see Flacco gets balls knocked down at the line of scrimmage, and he's a hell of a lot taller than most of the defensive linemen in this league. It's just, you know, with, with a guy who's, uh, you know, a foot shorter maybe than the wingspan height of the defensive lineman opposite him, there's, there's you know, there's real more than that, actually. There's, there's much more opportunity for batted passes and for pressure uh, and, and for flustering him and getting him to throw some bad balls. Right, right. I do want to kind of be positive about this because the Ravens did only give up 12 points they kept their streak of no second half touchdowns I guess no overtime touchdowns now either um but it feels like Baker Mayfield being a rookie helped us out and that that he is just going to get better week by week as this season goes on I, I would ex- I would certainly expect improvement from him. I don't think he played poorly. Um, it, his opportunity set would should have said he would have had about 318 yards based on Flacco's historical norm. He actually ended up with 304. I think we can look at that as the Ravens' defense actually pretty playing pretty well. Tavon Young's interception was very acrobatic. I don't think Mayfield threw a lot of other balls, which were even risks of interceptions. Uh, I thought that uh, generally speaking, he did pretty well. The Ravens' coverage units just were a little bit better in terms of providing the necessary uh, uh, positioning to keep him from completing some passes. And uh, yes, I'm very fearful of how good Mayfield is going to be. All right. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a different uh, different to see the Browns actually being a good team in the future. Um, we don't do MVPs since it's a loss, but I do want to talk about some guys who had big games because the defense, like we said, did play well. Yeah. So let's let's start with your favorite guy on the football field, number fifty-five. <laughs> hey, I, I I I try and report these guys as accurate as I can. Suggs had a fantastic drive. As I scored it, he I, fantastic game. He had uh, ten different pressure events. Nine of them were pressures or partial pressures. One sack. 
If you look at PFF, they probably have him for a, a few less pressures because I, I score proximity pressures more tightly on, against both offensive linemen and for the defense then. Um, he drew two holding penalties, which was terrific. Uh, he obviously had the sack. Uh, great game. If you go out to the article, all the time references are there. And I, there's a damning consistency to all these pressures where he just did a bull rush on Desmond Harrison. And if one move works, you don't need a second move, is the way I'd say Suggs played in this game. Take a look at the fourth quarter and overtime, what Suggs does to Desmond Harrison, and you'll see it's a very consistent bull rush driving him right back into uh, uh, into Mayfield, and it's, it's fun to watch. But anyway, time references are all out there on the— on the on Russell Street Report on the article. I mean, yeah, and we even saw Suggs go out for pass coverage on a play or two. Yeah, that's and, it's not that's not that atypical. He does drop from the line of scrimmage in, into uh, into coverage. He does it probably less than he used to. Right, he's but he's older. always he's always diagnosing screen passes and and outthinking the quarterback on the edge. That's yeah. for sure. All right, how about Zedaria Smith? He was on the field a bunch as well. Terrific game for him as well. Four quarterback hits. Uh, that included one sack in the group that he shared with uh, Kenny Young. Uh, he drew a holding penalty in addition that negated a 14-yard run. Uh, just a great game for him. He did have a pressure that was still Mayfield completed for 15, which is a big problem as Mayfield, I think, threw the ball pretty well under pressure. But Suggs is really getting it done. And, and he's rushing from the inside and outside. His pass results, rush results, are somewhat mitigated by the fact he he has to start with a disadvantage on the inside he's really helping all the other rushes along the line more than he's actually helping his own statistics but uh great player and i'm hearing a lot of talk and i think there's a lot of value to to considering what it would take to resign him at this point all right uh, i think we might get to that in the mailbag uh, today anyway a little bit more all right um let's talk about tony jefferson uh, Tony Jefferson playing great. I mean, you can certainly make the argument in the first four games he's been the the, the best player on defense. Uh, it would be very close to true. Uh, he certainly made a number of big plays, including the play at Pittsburgh. He solidified the back end. He's playing better as a center fielder than he ever has, uh, and he's supporting the run like he's never had to or never done before. Not at least not since Arizona. Uh, so doing a lot of things, doing a lot of things well, and uh, and and certainly. He's, I think he's much more playing the role of the up-front safety that the Ravens really need him to play. Frankly, a little distressed to see how much Weddle is playing near the line of scrimmage still in this game. I'd rather see him more in the back end. Even when he sacked the quarterback, I'm like, oh, crap. You know, why is he up again rushing the quarterback in this game? But uh, Jefferson, not to get away from him, has, has done wonderfully well. And uh, he did have a big, hurtful um, uh Roughly the passer call that got tacked on to the end of a 27-yard pass in overtime on the drive. They were eventually able to stop the Browns, but that almost lost them the game right there. So that was a bad one. Uh, but other than that, he, he, he had a couple of missed tackles in this game, but I thought generally speaking, he played very well. All right. Um, is this a good game for Matt Judon? Yeah, Matt Judon had a comeback game, in my opinion. I think a lot of people were unhappy with how he's been playing so far this season. So, you know, for him to get a sack... Uh, for him to uh, uh, take down Streeter on the reverse for a loss of 11. That play should have won the Ravens a game. First and 10 play, they're at the 16-yard line. Uh, he took he took Streeter down for a loss of 11, pushed him back to the 5. Second and 21, a couple minutes left in overtime. The Browns, frankly, should have been at a point where they're thinking about how can we somehow get out of this with a punt that, that doesn't 
kill us. Next two plays, you know, Mayfield runs for 13 to make it be third and eight. And then they have the, the 39-yard play, and they, they, they are in field goal range. They put it away with a 15-yard run, in my opinion, on the next play. So those three plays turned that game away from a game that the Ravens probably had a low to mid 80s percent chance to win to a chance to a, a chance to win it of maybe um, 15 <laughs> after that was done I mean they're at a point where the right. best they could really hope for was a tie at that point uh, yeah you can't win when your offense doesn't score at least it's not a, not very easy no all right uh, and you mentioned him earlier but the the team seemed to do a whole lot better when Anthony Levine was on the field Anthony Levine right now is the Ravens' best defensive player, and that's with Suggs having such a big game here. And I actually think Suggs probably had a slightly better game this this week, but Levine has put together two weeks, which I'd argue are the two best consecutive games, certainly, of any Ravens dime in history. And I would I would say that these two games probably elevate him to right into that discussion with Corey Harris as the best dime in team history. Uh, Harris had more of the background scenery to uh, to get it done over a longer period of time. He was four years. He was a, a safety with the Ravens, three of those as the dime. Uh, Levine has uh, you know just started to play very regularly in the dime package last year, uh, but what he's played this year is at the highest level ever attained by a Ravens dime, so that's been very impressive. What did he do in this game to earn that kind of respect? Well, for the second consecutive game, he had three passes defensed. Now, I'm only aware of two other cornerbacks who have had three passes defensed in consecutive games, to give you an idea of how rare this is. Chris McAllister did it in the first two games of the 2000 playoffs against Denver and then against Tennessee. The only other guy to do it was Antonio Langham in 1997. Okay, it's possible I've missed one in this research, but I don't believe so. So anyway... Levine becomes only the third Raven ever to do that. It's an extremely rare feat, and the, he has gotten got three PDs in this game. All the ones last week against Pittsburgh were closed the window passes defense, as I'll call them. They were to defend a pass between level two and level three where he slid in the passing lane and made a play. He did make one such play in this game, nearly was intercepted for what probably would have been the game-winning pick. But he also had one that was a pass defense by the sideline, uh, and he had another where he was actually rushing the passer and left and knocked down a pass. So he's doing it everywhere, every which way this time. He had five drive-ending contributions in this game. Now, remember, he, he ended the last three drives at Pittsburgh personally with passes right. defense. He had five more. So of the last 17 drives that the Ravens have stopped, Levine has, has had the major hand in eight of those. So in this game, it was three tackles short of the sticks one pass defense, and one other where he's the primary in coverage on a screen pass that, that uh, Mayfield had to accept a sack on the play. So very good uh, uh, game for Levine just at, at, the, at the top of his game right now and at the top, frankly, of where any Raven Diamond history is played. That's awesome. That's exciting, and hopefully that just continues as we get through this season. Yeah, uh, it'd, be, it'd be great if a 22-year-old player and not a 31-year-old player was who we were all excited about, which sure. is what the Browns got to have. But, but uh, yes, it's very exciting to have Levine playing at this level. Yeah, yeah, of course. I'd rather it be Tavon Young or a young guy like yeah. that. But still, uh, as far as this season, let's continue, continue to use that and enjoy this season rather than the future. Uh, let's get to the mailbag. Get in your questions using the hashtag 
film study mailbag or comment on uh, the Russell Street Report articles for film study and we'll browse there for your questions as well. Got just a few uh, because again it's a game people are trying to forget now they really continue to discuss. So um, this first one is a comment coming in from Andrew who says as of now I want Zadaria Smith back. I don't want to see us lose another player we need allowed to leave. Uh, it's a it's a real good point. It's becoming very apparent just how emergent he is as a pass rusher here. Now, last year, I thought he was very dominant. Got a lot of quarterback hits, uh, was adding a lot to the pass rush. But I really like McPhee as an interior pass rusher. Zadarius Smith has a lot of those same qualities. He's even better on the outside than he is on the inside, but he's willing to do either. Uh, he'd be an exciting guy to have back. You know, He's a guy right now I'd offer low cornerstone money to me. Which is in the in uh, to to try and keep and extend, which would be something maybe in the eight to nine million dollar range with a fair amount of guarantees that would go with that. Uh, I think he'd be well worth it at that price. I think if you if you go higher at the, you're probably gonna have to pay more at the end of the season uh, for for a player like uh, Smith. On the other hand, the offsetting value is that if you can't work it out, you also get a draft pick out of it, and he almost certainly would draw a third or fourth round incremental draft pick. So that's the the special sauce the the Ravens always look to harvest when they can't re-sign a player. But they can afford it. Unlike in past years, they really can afford to sign Zadarius Smith, even if they, they decide they want to also sign Mosley. They can afford both. And keep Flacco, by the way. All right. Uh, another linebacker question here coming in from Zach. Should the Ravens consider having Kenny Young in as the lone linebacker on passing downs instead of Mosley? I'm going to say no on that. I, I like a lot of what Kenny Young brings to the team, and I think he's he's a valuable guy to have in that second inside linebacker spot to play next to Mosley. But Mosley is that all-around guy who can support the run. He also at least understands what's going on behind him most of the time in terms of, the, of that passing game. Doesn't mean he can always do the things he needs to do to cover the area between L2 and L3 that has been the Ravens' weakness against tight ends and whatnot. Uh, but but he is he at least understands what's going on. Kenny Young at this point in his career is a pure downhill player. If the play's not in front of him, he really has no idea what's going on. And he's demonstrated that in a number of different ways. But he's also made a lot of plays. I'm very excited about him as a player, but I don't think it's time yet to to make him be the every down linebacker. It is a question as to whether the Ravens want to take a risk with him at the end of this year. A lot of people say Mosley will be too expensive, and there's a price at which they should say no. And so if you want to know what you have and try to get a better sense uh, on whether or not Kenny Young is ready to take over for Mosley, then I think you maybe do need to consider whether or not you put him in there for some of those plays. But maybe it's, a, it's something to be considered for a team that's uh, you know, struggling through the season and is 4-6 and six, instead of one that right now is very much in the playoff hunt at 3-2. and two. All right. Um... All right, one more question. We'll get to offense questions tomorrow. Actually, I have a question myself, too, so we'll go with two more questions. But uh, <laughs> next one is from Minion Hunter. Why do you think the special teams has struggled this year in the kicking game? Okay, well, I've heard a lot of explanations about the timing of the shrug and whatnot with, uh, um, with Tucker in terms of the kicks. You know, the, it's two blocks. It's not 20 blocks. Right. You know, the first one, we know there was a problem with the with the jumping over the A-gap illegally. I don't really take too much from that one. The the uh, Off the edge, Denzel Ward uh, you know, getting in there, that's a problem. 
and that that's something they need to fix on the wing and make sure that their technique is good and it's something can be coached better by Rosberg. So, uh, you know, I think it's probably a combination of things. They, they you know, Bowser is broken down on a on a punt block situation. I think their their coverage on punts has been pretty good. Their coverage on kickoffs has been pretty good. But they haven't tried to pooch a lot of kicks. You know, we're seeing in recent games, most of the time they're saying the defense is good enough to stop the other team from the 25-yard line. Let's not take a chance on a big return. And that right there should be telling uh, everybody that they're not completely satisfied with their coverage units. So, uh, yeah, honestly, there's a, there's a generalized set of problems. Uh, you know, if you look at one other question, I don't know why Board or McClellan didn't get cut this week. Darius Williams was a guy who would have been the fifth corner. It made more sense for me to go into the game, for them to go into the game with him and cut either Board or McClellan. They didn't do it. I think that was a concession to special teams that they said our special teams unit is just too weak to be without those guys. So, all right. Um, uh, my final question is uh, outside of the overtime, the Ravens seem to do really good with the void in the penalties. And it seems like the Browns were getting hit with penalties, but the Ravens weren't. Is that a discipline thing or? Did the Ravens come in more prepared? How do you avoid penalties like that? Or is it just well, luck? No, it's not just luck. First of all, for the for the false start penalties, they didn't have any on the offensive line. And the Ravens probably could have had a couple called, but they didn't have any any blatant false starts. I would say blatant false starts. That means one guy jumps, and then he goes, you know, kind of, oh, shit, I, I, I missed it, and, and there's an obvious flag. The Ravens had a couple where there was some timing mechanism going on with the tackles, and I think on each side one time they jumped early. And it, it, it was about two clicks on the two thirtieths of a second, about 0.07 seconds on the v, on the DVR. So I, I would guess that's the kind of thing that almost never would get called correctly in real time. Right. Uh, you know, maybe if it's sent to the league that they're looking for at the next game, maybe they catch them. But it seemed like there's, there has to be a timing mechanism going on and, and they're just barely beating the snap. But on the other penalties, the holding penalties, they're a function of getting beat. That's right. how you get holding penalties. Right. I, I thought, if anything, the the uh, Browns had a couple penalties, and probably because they'd had so many called against them in this game that weren't called. They had a couple of illegal hands to the face penalties that looked really bad when we scored the offensive line tonight. So uh, it didn't get called. They got called for one of those earlier in the game, but they had a couple more that did not get called, one really bad one against Yonda. So I, I'm, you know, I don't think it's luck that the Ravens got fewer penalties than the Browns. Okay. All right. Um, we have just kind of touched the surface of looking at this defense. If people want to get really in-depth, they need to go on over to Russell Street Report, click on the film study article, and in there you're going in there real depth with timestamps and everything, right? Yeah. So that's if you want to follow along on Game Pass, that's a, that's a good way to do it. Lots of information there. We do appreciate that you want to listen, you want to use your spare time in the car and whatnot. Love for you to download this podcast because we do talk about some other things and you have good interaction with Josh and the mailbag and whatnot. But a lot of this stuff does come directly from the article. Love you to look that. You want to follow, look at that. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Film Study Ravens. Uh, very interactive all day. Lots of good questions. It's a good analyst community. They'll be responding to your questions if we if we chat there. Uh, Josh, tell them a little bit about your various yeah. activities. So uh, follow me on Twitter at Josh Soroka. Uh, and check out Section 336, brand new episode out today, where we talk about uh, Buck and Dan being fired from the Orioles this past week. And then yesterday, I, uh, Zach Britton did a little interview with Fangraphs, and uh, just a little comment that most people would just glance over, but he talked about analytics, and he said how 
the analytics of the New York Yankees blow away anything that he's ever seen in Baltimore and how they've got stats he didn't know really existed <laughs> in New York. Uh-oh. So we got into the talk of baseball changing with analytics and the fact that the Yankees can have a whole classroom of guys who can go through these computers when the, the smaller markets like the Orioles might have uh, three or four an- analytic guys. So you um, can, by the way, Josh, if I were in an analytics department for the Orioles, believe me, I'd have 20 guys from Johns Hopkins working for me as interns. That would not be a hard thing to sell to other people. It's not an expensive department to run. Okay. That, that, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, yeah, I'll go over there and I'll watch some film for you Orioles for free and I'll, I'll flag some stuff for you. But, uh, <laughs> But the difference is in what they're putting value in, and it's where we will. That's why we also led the, to talk about what we're looking for in the next GM, because it is going to be a guy who has to be able to know that type of baseball. Yeah, very much so. And I, I, I would like them to get a uh, to get a Moneyball guy, given what the, where this market seems to be right now. Uh, you know, the Expos yeah. move still still a dagger to the heart, frankly, of the it, Baltimore area. It killed the uh, market space of the Baltimore Orioles and made us a small market, not even a mid-market anymore. So we have to adjust, and it's time. So, all right, Tim. Well, we will talk in a couple days. Take it easy, Josh. Winning comes in all shapes and sizes. Every day there's an opportunity for a win, just like scratchers from the Virginia Lottery. Every day grab-and-go, every day giftable, every day fun. It's where anticipation meets instant gratification, and they're satisfying to scratch no matter the outcome. Like the new Virginia Lottery Scratcher Colossal Cash. It's loaded with $100 to $500 prizes. Now that's an everyday win. Drive to the nearest Virginia Lottery retail location and pick up a scratcher today. Odds of winning any prize, 1 in 3.21. Introducing the Lowe's List for Innovation. While our aisles are filled with innovative products, we've selected our favorites just for you. Like the exclusive Whirlpool washer with industry-first two-in-one removable agitator. We love this washer because you can customize any load. And with other smart features to streamline your laundry routine, this product is a must-have for families. Shop the full Lowe's list of top picks at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. U.S. only. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. <laughs>